Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. As soon as J.B. Jones boarded the steamboat called the Ohio Bell, he seemed like he would be trouble. For starters, he was visibly drunk before even stepping on board. That's rarely a good sign. Second, he seemed to be a boisterous type. Animated, loud, bit obnoxious. He had a high-born swagger, sort of denoting that he was the son of a prominent planter. Author Stuart Sanders. And when he lurched on board the Ohio Bell, he really presented himself as a uh, Southern man of means. The date was March 14, 1856. Jones hailed from Mississippi, he said. This was a confusing era in American history. The Civil War was five years in the future, so the country was divided into free states and slave states. And while none of the figures in this story were enslaved people, the fact that the country was nearing that breaking point is relevant, at least in terms of the ship Jones had boarded. But more on that later. This is about J.B. Jones, who'd caught the Ohio Bell in Smithland, Kentucky, about 40 miles southwest of Cincinnati. His clothes were of good material and fitted him well, though they were somewhat impaired by use. His face was soiled, and his beard had grown to an uncomely length. His eyes were bloodshot and glared unnaturally. The crew of the Ohio Bell were accustomed to all sorts of passengers, from human cargo to celebrities. In fact, alongside Jones on this particular voyage was a famous actress named Matilda Heron, an Irish-born thespian who'd played the role of Camille in the play written by Alexander Dumas of Monte Cristo and Three Musketeers fame. Anyway, if Jones's swagger and appearance weren't foreboding enough, his first stop after boarding was to hit the saloon and drink some more. So the crew of the Ohio Bell probably knew from the get-go that he was someone to keep an eye on. Still, no one could have predicted what would happen next, that within a few hours, one man aboard the ship would be shot to death, another man's lifeless body would be found tied to a chair and bobbing in the river, and to top it all off, J.B. Jones wasn't J.B. Jones at all. It was a baffling story that made headlines in newspapers nationwide, headlines that, 160 years later, continue to underscore just how divided this country was on a whole lot of fronts, including how to respond to perceived insults and whether defending one's honor should include shooting a man in cold blood. Crimes of Centuries is sponsored by Heights. Tackle brain fog, energy, and sleep issues with Heights Smart Supplement. Go to yourheights.com and use my code COTC at checkout to get an extra 15% off your first subscription and start taking care of your brain and body today. One of the biggest lessons researching cases for this podcast has taught me is just how drastically life has changed over the past one to two centuries. That no doubt sounds a bit pedantic, but really, I don't think I fully appreciated how much had changed in such a short amount of time when you really stop and think about it. 
Steamboats help illustrate this. The first successful design hit the waterways in 1807, though the concept had been around about 20 years prior to that. This next person talking isn't me, but I'm told she sounds a lot like me. Prior to 1815, barges ran goods from Cincinnati to New Orleans on a total round trip of approximately 100 days. Even with the earliest steamboats, this trip was cut down to 30 days. This is a video from the Claremont County Public Library. Of course, trade along water routes is about as old as time, but before steamboats, it was a completely different beast. It took so long that it really limited the types of goods that could be traded. You couldn't very well load up anything remotely perishable onto a ship that was going to take three plus months to reach its destination. But when steamboats came along, the faster transportation speed meant that farmers could sell surplus crops to remote locations, which sparked economic growth. Not only were farmers selling more product, but they were reaching new customers. There was room to grow. And the country was growing, too. We all know that the first colonies were along the East Coast. But as Paul Anderson explains in this Boone County Public Library lecture... By the end of the uh, American Revolution, settlers pushed west across the Appalachian Mountains. Those settlers had gotten accustomed to how things were on the East Coast, what with food you didn't have to hunt and gather yourself. So as people moved west, they yearned for access to things more readily available out east. Before freeways existed, those goods came by river. The Ohio River was like RI-75 today. I mean, that was their way of transportation. At first, farmers and manufacturers sent their stuff mostly by flatboats or barges. Those were better for downstream traveling, though. Flatboats were usually dismantled once they reached their destination. Typically, no one even tried to go upstream with those. Barges could go upstream with some patient use of high tide and exhausted rowing, but it was a nightmare next to the comparative ease with which a steamboat could go upstream. This is the difference between trekking up a mountain by foot versus driving in your car. Now, the Ohio River was super important because it ran from Pittsburgh to Cairo, Illinois, where it converged with the Mississippi River, and from there it veered southwest to the port of New Orleans at the mouth of the Mississippi. The Ohio River divides Ohio and Kentucky, with Cincinnati on the Ohio side and Newport on the other. Here's a the-more-you-know moment. Here's my voice twin again from the Claremont County Public Library. Cincinnati was once the chief port along the Ohio River. So vital was the city to the nation's transit that it earned itself the name Queen City of the West. It's worth noting, too, that the river was a demarcation point when it came to slavery. There's a reason the Underground Railroad Museum is in downtown Cincinnati. Thousands of enslaved people managed to escape to freedom by crossing the Ohio River. That's more than just about state-line geography, though. Part of the reason the Cincinnati area was such a crucial point is because the waterway would often freeze there, making it possible for people to actually walk across the river, literally walk across water to freedom. Anyway, once steamboats (laughs) gathered steam, the country changed fast. Given its location, Cincinnati predictably became a big hub for steamboat building. In 1839, one of those vessels was christened the Ohio Bell, which regularly hauled goods and people from Cincinnati to New Orleans and back. 
Now, steamboat travel was not all upside with no downs when it came along. While steamboats allowed Cincinnati, Louisville, and other river towns to grow from the 1830s to the 1850s, you know, this type of travel, as many of you know, was not without risk. First, steamboats could run into snags uh, or other underwater obstacles and sink. And since many uh, 19th century Americans didn't know how to swim, you know, this was a, a fairly terrifying experience. Your boat ended up running into a, a snag and proved to be a dangerous ordeal. Uh, moreover, with each boat having massive furnaces and boilers on board that, that powered these vessels up and down the rivers, the risk of fire or explosions was really ever present. Which is kind of nuts to think about. People were paying good money to travel aboard these boats that caught fire all the time. So boilers were never fully constructed properly. Um, there was little regulation. There was inconsistent metal strength. And so, you know, with, without any safety standards during this period, um, as a historian named Laura Davis has explained, about 21% of all antebellum riverboats either burned or exploded. That's one-fifth of the vessels. Imagine boarding an airplane today, knowing that random explosion was quite possible. So because of explosions, because of fires, ice in the rivers, the danger of snags, you know, most steamboats that were traveling the Ohio and Mississippi actually only survived for about five years. This is probably why the steamboat called Ohio Bell that our story takes place on wasn't the one christened in 1839, nor the slightly bigger one that replaced that first one in 1843. In 1856, the drunken man calling himself J.B. Jones had climbed aboard the third iteration of the Ohio Bell, the biggest one yet, which had been built two years earlier. Jones was on the small side with a baby face that made him look younger than his 27 years. According to the Weekly Mississippian, he had, quote, small black eyes, very black hair, round face, his eyes appear round, his speech a little abrupt, not quite a stoppage, but nearly so, end quote. They used to say stoppage for stutter back in the day. As I mentioned earlier, Jones went straight to the saloon when he staggered on board. He'd had quite a bit of booze by 11 a.m., as author Stuart Sanders said. While the boat was between Smithland and Cairo, Illinois, Jones stumbled out of the saloon and he went to the boat's barber to get a, a shave. And to pay uh, his bill for the shave, he ended up presenting the boat's clerk with a $20 bill. Sanders researched the case in depth for a book he wrote called Murder on the Ohio Bell. The clerk on the receiving end of J.B. Jones's $20 bill was no slouch. Hiram Stevens was a Cincinnati resident who had worked for years on these steamboats, even serving as a captain on one of them. He'd seen a lot of scams in his day in part because the riverboats were popular with gamblers and con artists, and Stevens knew to be on the lookout for counterfeit money. We know counterfeit dough can be a problem today, but that's nothing compared to how things were before the federal government started issuing paper money in 1861. Before that, there was no uniform national currency. Instead, private banks were permitted to print and circulate their own banknotes, or paper currency, under state charter. Between 1793 and 1861, about 1,600 private banks were printing different denominations, meaning that there were some 7,000 different designs floating around the country. It really was only the Civil War that unified things because the government needed to finance the war. 
Anyway, whatever $20 bill J.B. Jones presented struck Hiram Stevens as fake, and he said so. Jones was insulted, but he had deep enough pockets that he simply pulled out a $10 bill instead. Stevens looked at that one and said, nope, that looks fake too. Jones was no longer merely insulted. Well, Jones became even more enraged. He started to curse and scream at the clerk. And a reporter later wrote that Jones, quote, paced the cabin, abusing the boat, and Captain Stevens particularly, using vile and improper language in the hearing of the ladies. I'm grabbing my pearls. People were shocked by Jones's drunken behavior. And Stevens essentially told him, he said, look, calm down. Um, or I'm going to remove you from the cabin. Jones kept ranting. And finally, Stevens grabbed the drunken Mississippian by the arm, told the Southerner that he violated the rules of the boat, and walked him forcibly out of the cabin. Whether Stevens was right about Jones's bills being counterfeit, we'll never know. No one held on to them to check them later. And the news coverage about the altercation was biased in both directions, depending on where the story was written. What we do know is that the situation had escalated quickly, and within minutes, one of the men would be dead, leaving others on the boat out for blood. When we think about America and the antebellum era, our minds usually go straight to slavery, which makes sense. It was the defining issue of the period. But there were other cultural differences between the North and the South. If you get all psychoanalytical about it, you can make a reasonable argument that the issues all intertwine and overlap, but I'm not qualified to do that. So I'll tease out one matter as its own separate thing because it played a role in this case. It was called Southern Honor Culture. This isn't something Sanders made up, for the record. There are entire college courses and books that examine the concept of antebellum honor culture. To it, here's a snippet of a history lecture from Georgia Highlands College. When we talk about this culture of honor, I think it's significant because it represents an extra legal system, an extra legal code of behavior. It's reserved for society's elite. This is Dr. Steve Blankenship talking. By extra legal, I mean meaning outside the law, that these elite political leaders of the early republic could do things, including shoot each other, with some impunity. So this is a, a system to regulate elite behavior that's not available to the mass public. If you hear that definition, you might notice this isn't a Southern-specific thing. And inherently it wasn't. The idea was that a person's honor was paramount, and if you insulted that honor, they could react outside of legal channels to defend their honor, even if that might mean shooting someone dead. While this could happen anywhere, the fact is that society had more obvious tiers class-wise in the South than in the North. That's bound to happen when you live somewhere that allows you to legally own another human being. As such, you saw people invoking their right to defend their honor more often in the South. If an enslaved person insulted a white person, not even necessarily their quote-unquote owner, just any white person, including fellow servants, that supposedly insulted person could say, hey, you've besmirched my honor, and they could respond accordingly. Insult a person of wealth and stature, and Lord help you. J.B. Jones was a man of means. Hiram Stevens was not. 
As such, when Stevens accused Jones of trying to pass counterfeit bills, and worse, refused to believe Jones when he insisted those bills were legit, thereby suggesting Jones was a liar, he insulted him. And because Stevens was of a lower class than Jones, what with Stevens being a steamboat crew member and not heir to a prominent Mississippi planter and all, Jones considered it an affront demanding retribution. This was a grave offense and sort of uh, scalded his honor, you know, bruised his honor. And since he put his hands on the upper class Jones and again forced him out of the cabin, this was a, a terrible insult to this Mississippian. Jones would have been raised to believe he had to respond, and quickly. Anything short of an immediate response would have meant he allowed the disrespect. There's no simmering down period allowed when defending one's honor. Typically, it meant that an immediate response had to happen. While this was often a caning or a horse whipping, this time the inebriated J.B. Jones, instead he pulled a pistol and ended up shooting the clerk, Hiram Stevens, in the chest, and Stevens fell died in about 15 minutes. But Jones miscalculated Stevens's stature. Sure, he was a clerk on a steamboat, but he'd also been the captain of another one. He was known as a level-headed, honest man. And a Cincinnati newspaper later wrote that Stevens was extensively known and respected and beloved in the community. Granted, that analysis had to come later. There weren't quick ways to disseminate news of shooting deaths from steamboats back in the mid-19th century, so it isn't as though word of this traveled especially fast in the real world. But on the ship, it traveled quickly. Jones seemed to realize that his rash response to Stevens's supposed affront wouldn't sit well with crewmates, so after he fired his pistol, he turned and ran. But you know, it's hard to run very far when you're on a boat, on a river with a strong current. Oh, and chances are, Jones didn't know how to swim because, if you remember, lots of people didn't in this era. So once word spread that this drunken passenger had killed Hiram Stevens, he basically ran around the boat for a bit, his gun still in his hand, until he was finally cornered on the top deck. When they captured him, they actually knocked him to the ground and they beat him severely. The scene soon became extremely chaotic, Passengers crowded around the murderer, calling for him to be either drowned or hanged. Others, however, wanted legal justice to prevail. Among that latter group was the actress Matilda Heron. Now, Heron was famous not just because she was in a popular play at the time. Her approach to performing was kind of revolutionary. To this day, she's credited with having... Invented the emotional school of acting... This is another one of those cultural developments you don't really think about on a regular basis, but the deal is that acting has evolved enormously over the centuries. In Shakespeare's day, it was more about enunciation and making sure the back row of the unmiked theater could make out what you were saying. Matilda Heron wasn't about elocution. She was about emotion. It riveted theatergoers of the time. I found a story by the San Francisco Chronicle and republished in papers nationwide from February 1854 that calls her an unappreciated gem, a sensation, a new star. Quote, one who we believe is destined in her chosen walk to be the foremost woman of her time. End quote. The story continued. She has played 12 nights in the test characters of the tragic drama and after a success unparalleled, closed with a reputation which places her at the very pinnacle of fame. 
Night after night, her houses have not only been filled, but crowded. And the ardent thousands who have contributed to her applause seem to have been governed by a feeling of direct and active personal interest in her welfare. Genius alone can excite such a sentiment as this, and they who win it have reason to thank heaven, for they are the favored of the gods. In short, when she took the stage, she made people feel. She made them care. So you can picture the scene when J.B. Jones was captured. One reporter uh, wrote, as soon as he was captured, one end of a strong rope was placed around Jones's neck and preparations were made to string him up at the juncture. Miss Heron, the actress who was on board, appeared and made a strong appeal to them on behalf of the young man and insisted upon their turning him over to the laws of the country to be dealt with. The execution was abandoned. So Matilda Heron calmed everyone down, and in this uh, instance at least, it saved Jones from the vigilante's noose. Not that Jones was handled with kid gloves by any means. The crew was still angry and they were worried he might try to escape or maybe even hurt others on the ship, considering he had shown himself to be a violent guy after all. So they tied him to a chair in the engine room, wrapping one long rope around his body and knotting it. These were sailors after all. If they knew anything, they knew knots. A reporter later wrote that the cord was lashed, quote, across his mouth so tight that it stretched the corners of his mouth back considerably, cutting them so that the blood ran down his jaws, leaving him in the greatest agony. Agony, sure, but he was still alive. Matilda Heron's pleas had been heeded. The Ohio Bell kept sailing. When it reached Cairo, Illinois, the ship's captain, a Louisville native named John Sebastian, tried to leave him to be dealt with by law enforcement officials there. Sebastian met with lawyers in town, but those lawyers said, you know, if you dump him here, he's likely to just be released because the killing wasn't in our jurisdiction. In fact, it's a little murky whose jurisdiction it would have been in because it happened aboard a moving boat. The captain did manage to have Stevens's body taken off the Ohio Bell and shipped back to Cincinnati, where it would be buried in the historic Spring Grove Cemetery. The captain decided to hold on to J.B. Jones and try to turn him over to authorities at the next planned stop, Hickman, Kentucky. But a strange thing happened in between Cairo and Hickman. Somehow, the man called J.B. Jones managed to disappear. When the Ohio Bell left Cairo, Kentucky, J.B. Jones was lashed to a chair in the engine room. He was not comfortable there, his face bleeding from the rope rubbing against the corners of his mouth. But he was alive, which is more than some would have expected for a suspected counterfeiter who'd shot a well-liked crewman. The plan, Captain Sebastian would later say, was to deliver Jones to authorities in Hickman and hope that they would at least try him there. Thing was, though, that the farther away the ship got from Cincinnati, the less the crew had reason to trust that anything close to justice would be meted out. After all, the farther south they got, the deeper they entered territory embracing of the whole Southern Honor culture mentality, meaning the more likely it was that Jones would be forgiven since he had supposedly been slighted by someone of a lower class. So perhaps it wasn't a surprise to many that Jones straight up disappeared from the engine room. It happened the very night the ship had left Cairo, which is where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers meet. Not only was Jones gone, but so was the rope used to bind him and even the chair to which he'd been tied. 
Passengers and crew members were questioned, but everyone claimed they had no idea what happened to the man. Some speculated he had broken the whole chair free and managed to sort of hobble his way to the top deck while still tied to the chair. And once there, maybe he had managed to free himself and then flee. There was no evidence supporting that, but it seemed plausible to a degree, at least. I mean, as much as the crew worried he wouldn't be fairly tried in Kentucky, Jones could have worried that he would be, or he could have tried to flee because he didn't trust the detente the crew had seemed to reach. They had, after all, been ready to string him up before Matilda Heron apparently made her impassioned plea. How this story plays out in the news is kind of fascinating. On March 16, 1856, wire dispatches explained that someone named J.B. Jones had shot and killed a clerk who had accused him of trying to pay with counterfeit bills aboard the Ohio Bell. Little else is conveyed. The next day, the story was expanded to include the plan to drop J.B. Jones and Hickman to face charges. The day after that, this postscript was added. Quote, it will be seen by a dispatch from Cairo that Jones is reported to have drowned himself, end quote. Some of the stories suggest that Jones was searched and discovered to have a quantity of counterfeit money on him, but I don't know how trustworthy that is. It's clear that some of these stories are not solid. Some actually say Jones was taken to a Hickman jail to await charges, which 100% didn't happen. As the days passed, the stories got more detailed. Here's a paragraph from a newspaper published April 3, 1856, in Ontario, Canada. Quote, After he had committed the foul murder, he stated that his name was J.B. Jones and that he resided in Mississippi. When he was informed that he had killed Stevens, he replied, Well, I was drunk. He's not the first man I've killed. From all accounts, it was a cold-blooded murder, and Jones is one of the many desperados and outlaws who infest our lower rivers, end quote. Now, even today, transmitting news from aboard boats isn't the fastest, most reliable way to disseminate information, so it's no surprise that it took a while for the news stories to catch up with the fact that Jones disappeared from the Ohio Bell just after it stopped in Cairo. In the meantime, Hiram Stevens' funeral was held in Cincinnati. It was described as a well-attended and solemn affair. Steamboats lowered flags to half-mast to note his death. Around the same time that was happening, however, folks downriver were learning what had become of Jones. His corpse was later found bobbing by a sandbar in the Mississippi River tied to a chair. The news coverage shifted from the Louisville Daily Courier, quote, The impression throughout this part of the country is that a most horrible murder has been perpetuated by the officers and crew of the boat. Mr. Jones was a respectable man, a citizen of Mississippi, we believe, and a man of property. Whilst we admit that he laid himself liable to punishment by shooting the clerk, we must say that almost any man of spirit, having been grossly insulted and finally assaulted, would have done the same thing. He should have been handed over to the legal authority at the first port and fairly tried for the offense. Altogether, we consider this one of the most horrible affairs that has ever come to our knowledge. End quote. Author Stuart Sanders, who wrote Murder on the Ohio Bell. Initially, when J.B. Jones was found murdered, newspapers said, oh, you know, what a terrible killer. He's one of these terrible desperados who rides up and down the river on these steamboats. He murdered this poor clerk. 
Yet when they found out he was indeed a, a man of property and was indeed the son of a wealthy planner, the tenor of these newspaper articles really changed. And a lot of them, especially those located sort of near Mississippi, started talking about how the clerk basically had it coming. I um, mean, you know, they put their own sort of turn of honor on the story and said, oh, he, he never should have manhandled this uh, prominent man of property out of the cabin. And so they essentially shifted the blame from the wealthy Mississippian and put it on this lower class clerk. And that was something that was very interesting, too, because, you know, today we worry about does wealth actually influence media coverage? You know, it did in, in the mid 19th century as well. In an interesting twist, the investigation that ensued found that J.B. Jones didn't actually exist. That was an alias used by a man named Joseph Cock Jr. Cock had a sketchier past than anyone realized at first. His family hailed from Holly Springs, Mississippi, where his dad, Joseph Sr., ran a plantation on which some two dozen enslaved people were forced to work. Joseph Sr. was well-known in the community, helping to organize a barbecue in honor of future Confederate President Jefferson Davis. His son was using an alias for a reason. In 1851, the then 22-year-old Joseph Jr. had asked a girl to marry him. As Sanders explained in his book, Jr. apparently decided he needed to test this girl's fidelity, so he recruited a buddy to basically hit on her to see if she would be faithful to Joseph Jr. Well, it turned out that if Jr. should have worried about his taste in anyone, it was perhaps mates because his buddy, William J. Sanderson, used the opportunity to propose marriage to Jr.'s fiance, and she accepted it. The two got married. 20 minutes after the ceremony, Joseph Jr. asked his friend William to step outside. The groom did, and Jr. shot him in the face. He then saddled his horse and fled. He was on the run from his terrible past. He was traveling the rivers under an assumed name to try to avoid justice from another crime that he had committed just shortly before he was killed on board the Ohio Bell. Now, you know, ironically, even though he was on the run, a sort of cruel extra-legal justice ended up befalling him when he committed this crime on board the Ohio Bell. For weeks after William Sanderson's murder, regional newspapers ran notices looking for cock and describing him as I'd quoted toward the top of this episode. Small black eyes, very black hair, round face, abrupt speech that teetered toward a stutter. Sanderson's older brother offered a $500 reward. The governor added another $200. Officials fielded reports now and then about cock surfacing in one town or another, but they never panned out and soon his name faded from the stories. For the record, the name of the woman he had once proposed to and then left widowed on her wedding day to Sanderson was never identified in any of the stories I found. I would love to know how she felt when his name made headlines again in 1856 when the newspapers revealed that it had been him and not some fellow named J.B. Jones who'd shot the clerk on the Ohio Bell and then was tossed, still tied to a chair, into the mighty Mississippi. From the time Jones slash Cox's body was found bobbing in the water, Kentucky officials promised a full investigation, and they followed through. Charges were filed against the Ohio Bell's Captain John Sebastian, and though he was acquitted, it seems he might have feared being targeted by vigilantes himself because Sanders reports that Sebastian avoided the Hickman port and others nearby in the wake of the scandal. But then the Civil War started, and all hell broke loose in this country. 
Sebastian fought for the Union, piloting a gunboat called the A.O. Tyler. He lost his left arm in the process. The Ohio Bell was recruited for Union use, too. The ship could haul 700 troops, 175 animals, and 15 wagons, making it useful until about 1863, when the focus shifted to larger steamers until the war's end in 1865. Sebastian would eventually captain the Ohio Bell again, and then another steamboat, before retiring from the trade in the late 1860s. In his retirement, he would be elected Hamilton County Treasurer, which he would serve for two years. He died of what was deemed brain congestion in 1876. He's buried in the same cemetery as his slain former clerk, Hiram Stevens. The Ohio Bell had a swifter decline. After the war, railroad lines swiftly spread, curtailing the use of steamboats. The Bell was sold to some Alabama business folk in 1865, who knew that keeping the ship's name wouldn't serve them well in the Reconstruction era. As such, the ship was renamed the Alabama Bell. Two years later, the 12-year-old steamboat was sold for scrap. To research this story, I read Stuart W. Sanders' Murder on the Ohio Bell. I also spent a lot of time in the newspaper archives and learned a ton about Southern honor culture, which you'd think I would have known about since my U.S. history learning days were spent in Georgia. But no, this was news to me. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>